Have you ever had someone put you down? You ever had someone label you with words like, you're disgraceful, disgusting, you're rotten, you're loathsome, you're unworthy, you're useless, you're evil, you're worthless. If I had a dog like you, I'd kill him. What's the result of hearing things like that? Sometimes you feel diminished. You want to just disappear. You wish you were invisible, but you got clothes on, so you got a problem. You want to shrink. You want to withdraw. You want to contract. You want to hide. You're downcast. You want to not be so tall. You wish you could escape. You want to cover up. What is it that's happened to you? You have had shame put on you. Today, we want to take shame off you. Tell someone, shame off you. Why does that sound so weird? Because we've heard shame on you so many times. Now, oftentimes when someone's been shamed, it's because something shameful has happened. But I want to tell you that those things are still shameful. Sin is still sin. But Christ came to save sinners, did he not? He came to take shame off of us. And Christianity is the only faith the only religion in the world that deals with the shame problem. It's true. Other faiths I know of from my research, they're good at putting shame on you. In fact, some, some religions, it's okay to kill your kids if they shame you, if they bring shame to the family. It's all about saving faith to get shame off of you. As humans, many times we're really good at putting shame on people but have you ever gone to someone that you've shamed to try to get it off of them? Not really. We're all up in arms, especially this week, over third-term abortion that is being pushed for. What, what's happening in our culture? We're being manipulated. If they can get us fighting over late-term abortion, we'll ignore, we'll ignore abortions that are earlier. They did it with they manipulated us with same-sex marriage. I mean, shortly after the Supreme Court made their decision, it wasn't long. It seemed like days, maybe it was weeks. Suddenly, here's a new battle in the culture that came to the forefront in the news. Men using women's restrooms to try to make homosexual marriage not such a bad thing, because look at this. And now they're really trying to manip manipulate us. This, how many genders are there, really? They're doing that with abortion. That's not my topic today. But the church as a whole has been part of the problem because a significant percentage of women pursuing abortions are Christians who don't want to have shame put on them by their brothers and sisters. We even had a guest speaker once do it. We'll never have him back again. It's a shame. Just put shame on all the women in the house that have had a child and they weren't married or unplanned pregnancy. What good does that do? It doesn't do any good. It's after the fact. It, you know, you can shame your child for spilling milk, but does the milk need cleaning up? Yes. What can we do? Here's a mess. What can we do to help? What can we do to serve? If the church has ever shamed you for something, this church or any other, please forgive us. 
Well, I think I'm going to shame you back. Well, then we're locked up here. We'll receive it because Jesus took our shame for us. In John chapter 2 is a story of an amazing wedding event, the Lord's first miracle. Lights, please. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. John chapter 2. I'd like to look at this story. Just 11 verses. Verse 1 says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, she lived, Jesus' family lived in Nazareth, not too far from Cana. Today you can go to Cana, there's kind of a debate which Cana it is, but they're both pretty close to Nazareth. One of them has built a chapel with six stone water pots, and couples go there and get married. I guess they drink wine too, I'm not sure. Did you hear about the guy that got pulled over by police and said, have you been drinking? No, sir, I'm a Christian. Oh, really? What you got in that jug over there? Water? Hand it to me. He, smelled, he said, it smells like wine. He said, praise the Lord, he did it again. John 2, verse 1 again. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. What's the significance of the third day? If you dig into it through the centuries of Bible scholars in the, in the commentary, they don't agree on what, why did John write this. Is he building a timeline for up to the crucifixion? Not so. Is it how many days after the events of chapter 1? concluded with? Not necessarily. It may very well have been, most likely, the third day of the week. What's significant about that? Well, 
In that culture, the fourth day of the week was the day virgins got married. And the fifth day of the week was wedding days for widows. Here's a wedding on the third day. <gasps> Perhaps that was the case. But what we do know, what was shameful, was for you to run out of refreshments, food and beverages for your guests. And wine being the principal beverage, this was not a good thing. In that culture, and continues today in the Middle East, families go all out for the weddings of their children. I mean, if they could, they would, you know, remortgage their tents. They go all out. Even gypsies in Romania spend a lot of money. I mean, this is the major expenditure of one's life as a wedding. And then you invite your friends. And, and then when their kids get married, for them to not follow through, likewise, is a shameful thing. This was a tough deal. So here the Lord's first miracle is a wedding. What's the significance of that? Well, twofold. One is human history as we know it begins with a wedding and his miraculous ministry, as the Bible records it, begins at a wedding. And human history, as the Bible predicts it, is going to end, conclude, continue, next chapter with a wedding. Commencement is not the ending, it's the beginning, right? So the third day there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So he has at least five disciples at this point. Chapter 1 ends with him, you know, getting six, but Peter's not necessarily following him yet. There's other instances of his calling in the Gospels before he really surrendered. So they're invited to the wedding. Hey, come and bring your friends. And they ran out of wine. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they had no wine. Now, all the guests may not yet know at this point. Traditionally, women are seated nearest the kitchen. Who knows why? <laughs> so they would be the first to know that the supplies are running low. And she tells her son, Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, verse 4, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? This isn't disrespect. This was a, a term of respect, woman. If your husband calls you woman or your child calls you woman, you may not like it, but in this culture, this term, they liked it. I grew up in West Africa, and to be called old man was, a, was like one of the highest honors. Whereas in Texas, hey, old man, you might get punched in the nose. Otis Weitz was an older gentleman who helped build this building. He was a building contractor, so he used all of his subcontractors. And one day he got in a disagreement with one of the employees of the subcontractors on the stairwell. They weren't doing something to his specifications. And the young man got mad and said, old man, I can whip you. And Otis was real slim. His pants barely stayed up. He didn't wear a belt, just short pants and penny loafers with no socks and kind of a disheveled shirt. He said, oh, yeah? 
you probably can whip me. And he reached in his back pocket, pulled out his checkbook and waved it at him. He said, but I can write a check and have you whipped. <laughs> yeah, it was funny at the time too. <laughs> Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I think what he was referring to was his plan to go public. And before this chapter ends, he goes public in a big way. He goes to Jerusalem and cleanses the temple the first time he did it. He did it towards the end of his life again. He cleaned house. You made my father's house a den of thieves. He became publicly known and did a lot of miracles that warranted one of the Sanhedrin, one of the theologians of the day, to come visit him by night, the next chapter. And, and then by chapter 4, he goes back to Galilee from Jerusalem to minister, and there were people there that remembered, actually chapter 5, that remembered the mighty works they had seen him do in Jerusalem, which just happened to be during the Passover. Before the Passover began, the women cleaned the leaven out of their houses, they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and during that time, Jesus cleaned house in his father's house. So that, no doubt, was his plan to go public then. Mama, why are you messing with me? But let's put ourselves in Mary's shoes. She's had him for 30 years. She's known who he was, and people close to her have had their doubts. No doubt they have tried to put shame on her. Yes, an angel, right, right. Right? Was he a Roman soldier, you know? Um, did Joseph have an angel costume? Who knows what they did to mock her. She was ready for her son to go public. She's done. It's time. You're 30. It's time, boy. <laughs> You're not going to get married. I mean, we grew up with these people, and now their kids are getting married. It's time that you be about your father's business. You wanted to do it when you are 12. Now's the time. So he seems to protest, but she ignores that. Verse 5. She said to the servants, the people serving at the festivities, said, whatever he says to you, do it. She doesn't know what he's going to do, but she's ready for him to do something. So we know that she knows what's going on, and the servants know what's going on. We're not sure about anyone else. Verse 6, now there were six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. These are stone water pots. They could be known as ceremonially clean. If they became unclean, they could be cleansed. If it was a clay pot, you had to destroy them if they ever became defiled. And six of them contain between 20 or 30 gallons. That's between 120 or 180 gallons. He said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. Can you say the brim? It means they're full. You can't get no more water in them. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. So it's from the dip to the sip that the miracle happened. Amazing miracle. You don't have to make it bigger than it is. You've got to make it what it is, though. Some preachers have tried to make it bigger than it is. The Lord made wine out of dirty dishwater. 
No, these are the kind of pots you would take water out of to wash your dishes, but you didn't wash your dishes in the pots. This was at least seven, uh, the amount of wine that would fill 768 bottles. We did the ounces, 128 ounces to a gallon, multiplied times 120 gallons, 700, and it equals you know, the amount of ounces, and then 20 ounces to a wine bottle, which is, which is what, two eight-ounce glasses and a half, that's, that's 20 ounces to a wine bottle. So 700, at least 768 wine bottles the Lord did here. Now, if it was 180, it was over 1,000 bottles of wine. Now, if they run out of wine at a Texas wedding, it's not a bad thing. Probably a good thing. But here in this culture, they had self-control, unlike Texans who drank to get smashed. This was their enjoyment in life. One of their joys in life was drinking good wine. Well, how old was this wine? It's brand new. Think of how long it would take to grow the grapevines and the amount of grapevines it would take to grow and how much time it would take to get that, that much grapes and then how many feet it would take to stomp on those grapes and the process of cleansing, you know, the stinky feet out of the thing and the pulp out to get the wine. This was a miracle that happened in minutes. It took longer to fill the water pots and for the miracle from the dip to the sip to happen. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from. He obviously didn't know what was going on. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, hey, where'd you get this? No, he assumed there was no, there was no shortage. I mean, look, verse 10. He said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Now, before you think the Lord has financed a, you know, a drunk fest, these festivities could last a week. So running out of wine here at the wedding day itself is really bad. What are they going to do for six more days? Have to boil water and, you know, the utilities weren't quite what they are today. This beginning, verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. No one else? Why? No one else knew. His mama knew, probably some of the women knew, and the servants knew. The bride and groom didn't even know. The Lord delivered them from a shameful circumstance without them even knowing. That's the love of God. Isn't that awesome? To me, that was an indicator of what he came to do to free us from shame. Shame off you is what I'd like to talk about. Subtitled, The Roots and Remedy for Being Ashamed. Where does being ashamed start? And what are the effects of it? And then what is the remedy of shame? In the Bible, the first humans were unashamed. Look at this. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I can see the teenagers saying, oh, look. Look, Bebus, they were naked. <laughs> well, I thought it was funny anyway. 
But I am positive we're not going to ask for a show of hands. There's plenty of husbands and wives that run around naked in front of each other. This was a shame-free life that they had. There was probably no moles, no warts, no... I was infested with freckles as a kid. No freckles, no deformities, nothing to be embarrassed about. But it's talking about more than that. They had no shame till after they sinned. Their failure to obey the command to not eat of a certain tree resulted in their attempt to cover up. The eyes of them both, after they sinned, were naked, were opened. They knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now, a fig leaf can cover a lot of ground. They're pretty big. It's a good fig tree's high enough, you can get some good shade. But those clothes don't last very long. For long, they're probably uncomfortable too. So, they're trying to cover up the fact they're ashamed. They, 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 they rushed at an attempt to cover up their shame. People do this when they commit a crime. They do their best to cover it up, and it makes the crime worse because then they get accused of obstruction of justice. Erase the tapes, you know. Shred the documents. We see politicians do this quite often. Hide the informant. Kill the whistleblower. Cover up, cover up. This is what we do when we are ashamed as human. Hiding from God was related to their being ashamed and afraid. In verse 8 of Genesis 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This is after they ate of the forbidden fruit in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They've never hidden from God before. Now they're hiding. Why? They're ashamed. The Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Where are you? I think God's asking some people in this room today, where are you? And you're hiding from him due to shame. He said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What is that? It's shame. Hiding from God, being ashamed and afraid due to their nakedness. Another effect of shame was in their blame shifting. Little kids do this most obviously. You know. We see the first instance of this in God questioning the man and woman. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. It's the woman's fault. And actually, you're part of the picture. You gave me the woman. Now, there's one lie the serpent couldn't tell this couple that he tells couples all the time today. He couldn't tell them, you married the wrong person. <laughs> Did you hear St. Peter lost track of Adam and Eve? So he hired Sherlock Holmes to find him, and about an hour Sherlock was back, and sure enough, here's Adam and Eve. Peter said, Sherlock, how could you do it so quickly? He said, it's very elementary, my dear Simon. They're the only two people here without belly buttons. 
Blame shifting. The woman did it too. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And she said, the devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me, which was true, and I ate. So she was deceived, but what was Adam? He was Beavis' best friend in this situation. Come on now, that was funny. I've never watched TV. I don't know what he's talking about. He was older than her, and he was given a job. Yeah, before God gave the first husband, the first wife, he gave him a job. And his job was, you read it, it's right there in Genesis chapter 2. Tend the garden, guard it, protect it. Study the Hebrew, man, it's there. Did he do his job? There's a talking snake in the garden, hello. Tempting his wife to do things that aren't right. So who's responsible in this situation? They both are. They both knew the will of God. They're both tempted to doubt the will of God. They both really were deceived. Did they need to try to cover up? They needed a, they should have started calling on God. God, help, we've messed up. But that's not what we do. And it comes, it comes to us through our nature, even when we're little kids, get caught with your hand in the cookie jar. Oh, I dropped my truck in here. <laughs> or, little brother dropped his truck in here and I'm giving him a hand. Where's the truck? I don't know, it's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> the fruit of their being ashamed included renaming. Now you have to think with me. When people put shame on you, they're putting a name on you. They're separating themselves from you. You know, you are bad, and I don't want to get struck by lightning when God kills you, you know. You ought to be ashamed. Now, there again, there are things that are shameful. But people that have done something shame, should they carry that label for the rest of their life? What do labels do? They separate us from people. That we identify things by labeling them. Who has a labeler at the house? Remember the old label? Should have had one of those. Look at what happened. After the fall, after the fall, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What's the big deal? There's no problem in that. Well, the name Eve is only in the Bible four times. Here's the first time. Then the second time when Adam knew his wife Eve, she conceived and bore Cain. The next two times, Paul in his writings refers to the woman as Eve when talking about the impact of this story. Here's a mother of all living being given a new name by her husband, and that new name is only used in the Bible three other times. What's the significance of that? Well, when she was created, Adam already named her. You miss it in your English Bible. You look at the Hebrew, you can see it. Adam, when he saw her, broke forth into song. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man. Because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. The Hebrew word for man is ish. So when ish looked at her, he said, isha. I'm going to stop. No more funniness. It's okay. I'm 
All right. All right. So he'd already called her Isha. So he gives her another name. Why? She's no longer worthy. She caused me to fall. God. Well, God also named her. In chapter 5, a quick review of what had happened previously. It says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them and called them Adam in the day they were created. Well, shouldn't she have a different name than her husband? What are they going to do, get confused? The woman says, Adam. Adam says, are you talking to yourself? If Adam says, Adam, Adam, why don't you listen to me? The woman says, oh, I thought you were talking to yourself. No, there was no problem here. You could call her Adama. They were the original Adam's family. Here I go again. <laughs> so he gives her this new name to label her like he did the animals when she was his equal. What is this? This is the consequence of sin. Couples do it to each other all the time. How could you be so stupid? You're a nutcase. You're just like your dad. You're just like your mom. Oh, I got my voices mixed up there. <laughs> On with the sermon. The remedy for all our sins and all our shame is found in the Lord's words to the serpent. Here it is. If you believe women are to be blamed for all the problems of the world. Jesus came and took it all away. Look at this promise. God tells the serpent, I will put enmity, that is division. You're not going to be friends. No fellowship between you, serpent, devil, Satan, and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. He, who is he? Her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The woman heard this promise and kept it to heart. So when her first child was born, Cain, you know what she said? I have gotten a man from the Lord. Boy, was that a disappointment when he killed her second child. So when she had her third child, they named him Seth. Guess what she said there? I have gotten another man from the Lord. What's she doing? She's looking for the fulfillment of this promise. And women look down through the centuries of covenant history for the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent, which is indication of dealing with his authority over mankind. And in so doing, this seed would suffer a less harmful suffering in the bruising of his heel not heels. In the crucifixion, the body of Jesus, I believe, was, hunt, was on three nails, suffering from all the wounds and lashes and slappings and tortures and bruisings, lacerations and scratches and cuts, the weight of his body hanging on three nails, most of which was on one nail at his feet, putting the weight of his body on Three nails and one heel. In the bruising of his heel, picture of the cross, 
Christ paid the price, taking our place, paying the penalty for sin, paying our fine, becoming sin as it were, yet without sin, being punished for us. We did the crime, he did the time. And through the bruising of his heel, his suffering on the cross, we now have victory over the serpent and over the shame that we have had passed down to us from our forefathers from every generation preceding us. The first humans were unashamed. Their failure to obey resulted in an attempt at covering up. We've been trying that ever since. Hiding from God is related to shame. Fear is related to shame. Another effect of shame is blaming others, blame shifting, playing the blame game. And the fruit of being ashamed is labeling others or renaming people, giving them nicknames even. We see that even in political circles. The remedy for all this and all our shame is found in the Lord's words to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. You will bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. In Romans 16, there's this promise. Be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. You don't have to get a degree in demonology to have victory over the serpent. Demons aren't having babies. There's no more of them around than there was in Jesus' day, and the Word gives us plenty of ammunition to use when fighting spiritual battles. So don't get sidetracked into thinking you have to study witchcraft to know how to deal with it. True. Pray for the person caught up in that stuff. Because guess what those demons do when they've had enough of this human being telling them what to do? They come home. The chickens come home to roost and torment that poor person. One day... I was mowing the lawn at my house, and I noticed a black mark on my driveway. So I walked from one end of the driveway to the others and saw a little leg, a little arm, another little leg, another little arm, and a pile of ashes. Someone had burned a doll in my driveway, no doubt doing the, the voodoo doll thing. I didn't immediately go into calling on the angels. No, I prayed for the person. Lord, would you please forgive this person for looking to these things for power and effectiveness in their life. Please forgive them, and let, may they not receive any repercussions for this. I just prayed for that person. That's it. Battle over. Because why? We're wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace crushes Satan under our feet. So, as a result of our redemption, we've been given a new name. Your name is Redeemed. No longer rejected. Your name is found. No longer lost. Your name is righteous. No longer sin. And blaming others, Jesus took the blame. We should never have conflict with others that doesn't stop. As much as depends upon you, walk in peace with all men, Paul wrote. Why? Jesus became sin so that we could become righteous. So if he became sin, why should I punish other people for their sins? That was a place for justice to be served and calling the police and all that. Romans 13 bears that out. But for you and I to be in constant conflict with others because of their sin, trying to put shame on people, all that's going to do is come back on you. 
He became sin for us so that we could be made not just righteous, but we could be made the righteousness of God. That's us. Now, I feel like there's maybe some here that really messed up in your life and you're already a believer and you think, boy, this is a good word for these unbelievers in this room. They really need to hear this. No, this is the gospel for us. The word gospel is throughout the New Testament. It's for us. Why? We're humans. We need redemption from time to time. Jesus has done it personally, but we need to taste it when we need it. No longer to be ashamed and afraid. We can come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. If God did not spare his son for us when we were yet sinners, how much more will he aid his children? Even more so. Well, I'm not worthy. Well, of course we're not worthy. Well, it's too good to be true. Well, it's the gospel. Don't let the enemy and your, the voices in your head and evil influences in your life cause you to hold on to some past mistake some past shameful thing, and to wear that like a badge. That's not the righteousness of God that you've been given. Taking it away. He bore it. He was wounded for our, iniqui- our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and he's removed those things from us as far as the east is from the west. If it was from the north, from the south, it would say, man, that's good. He took my sins away 12,500 miles away. Sooner or later, after you've committed, you know, your 13,000 sins since you've been a believer, you're going to begin to doubt that they've been removed. It's as far as the east is from the west. You cannot measure that. Head east. Tell me when you stop. Well, I got to some water. We'll get to swimming. (laughs) A failure to, to obey results in an attempt to cover up. Jesus didn't cover our sins. He removed them. This is more than atonement. This is redemption. The Old Covenant has atonement. It's great to cover your sins for another year, roll them back for another year. That's a huge snowball going somewhere. He removes them. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. And if that's a promise for unbelievers, it's a promise for believers. If it's not, there's no hope for any of us. So, What has he come to do? He's come to restore us to what was lost by the first Adam. This is the cry of mankind. Who's heard of Stormy or Martian? Her husband is a very famous producer. And he made a couple Christian albums. They're believers. And the song is called Adam Again. And the, the verses are pretty sad. Person caught up in a sinful lifestyle. And here's the refrain. Life in the garden was never this way. Can we ever be Adam again? We had so much. Now so little remains. Can we ever be Adam again? Each day that passes is just like before. No one confesses what their feelings are. They say that's life, and you can't expect much more. We can never be Adam again. They never knew that love can be made new, and good things in life don't have to end, because the last Adam came to give love a name and a way to be Adam again. Can you say Jesus? 
even the secular world, there's a cry in mankind to get back to the garden. Who's, who remembers Crosby, Stills, and Nash? Oh, harmonies like you wouldn't believe. Make my hair stand up. That's, kids would say, that's my jam. It ends their song about going to Woodstock. Well, I came upon a child of God. He was walking along the road. I asked him, tell me where you're going. Yes, he told me I'm going to Yasger's farm, going to join in a rock and roll band. Got to get back to the land and set my soul free. And then there's this little verse that changes at the very end of the song. This is the final version of the chorus. It says, we are stardust. We are golden. We are caught in the devil's bargain. And we got to get ourselves back to the garden. The truth is, we don't have to go back to the garden. The God searching for Adam has come to the garden and on a tree paid the price for the first mistake that was done with the tree, another tree, and all centuries of history of sin in between. All the shameful things have been covered. Well, I think I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Really? If you did, you wouldn't even be here today. So you haven't. You're here because the Lord is drawing you. He wants to get that shame off you. Matthew West wrote an awesome song called Hello, My Name Is. And there's two parts of the song. First part is Hello, My Name Is Regret. Hello, My Name Is Guilty. Hello, My Name Is Shame. The second half of the song has lines like, Hello, my name is child of the one true king. My name is forgiven. My name is redeemed. My name is unashamed. My name is regret. I'm pretty sure we have met. Every single day of your life, I'm the whisper inside that won't let you forget. Hello, my name is Defeat. I know you recognize me. Just when you think you can win, I'll drag you right back down again till you've lost all belief. Oh, these are the voices. Oh, these are the
Sometimes you may be at a social function with name tags. Spiritually, sometimes people's name tag doesn't reflect where they, what they really believe about themselves. Maybe your mama named you Victoria or named you Victor, and you feel like your name should be Loser. Take your name tag off and give it, get a new one. We used to sing an old hymn, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. He was hung up for our hang-ups so that we could be freed up and help others get free. So I don't want to shame you, but if you've been, been putting shame on others, stop it. Stop it. Devote your life to taking shame off of people. I'd like for us to sing the song we sang earlier called Stand in Your Love. When darkness tries to roll over my bones, when sorrow comes to steal the joy I own, when brokenness and pain is all I know, I won't be shaken. I won't be shaken. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. I think some of us need to realize our fear is a result of shame. My shame doesn't stand a chance when I stand. Oh,